0: I don't think you could be an entrepreneur and not be in fear. I think if you're not in fear, you're probably not pushing the boundaries. There's many nights for different reasons, but many nights going to sleep literally in tears and crying and not thinking I knew how it was going to work. And, and I think that's just part of the entrepreneur game. I think that's why community is important in entrepreneurship and doing personal work and therapy and stuff and personal growth, because that stuff happens when you're in business, the, the, the clear path's not always there. And if the clear path's not there, it's, that's scary as hell.
1: Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selik, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome seven hatters. In this episode, we speak with Mike Fata, and dive deep into hat number four, the entrepreneur, as we follow the journey of one of the most successful founders in the consumer package goods space. Mike shares his incredible roller coaster journey as a 300 pound high school dropout who transformed his life through the power of hemp. Sick and tired of being sick and tired, Mike overhauled his diet, launched his company Manitoba Harvest, strapped himself on the entrepreneurial roller coaster, and took the treacherous ride to not only one, but two nine-figure exits. His story is heartwarming and inspirational, not to mention that Mike drops value bombs like a B-52. So let's welcome Mike to The 7 Hats. Mike, welcome to The 7 Hats. Thanks for having me. It's really great to have you and, you know, today's show is so exciting for me. As you probably know, our companies have been working together for the past several years, which was a real source of pride for me because Manitoba Harvest, uh, which is your company, has long been one of my favorite brands in the industry. But we'll get to that in a bit. First, I'd love it if you can do the Reader Digest version of where you came from. Some background on your childhood and how that set you on your ultimate path. So where were you born, and how would you characterize your upbringing?
0: Yeah, happy to. Um, I was born in Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is on Lake Superior, but um, I grew up in Winnipeg and grew up with a single mom, my brother and I. And so we were didn't have a lot of money. And so I think I, I learned the survival instinct of uh, of growing up a s- single-family household pretty young, and that led to some of my my life decisions, which ultimately led to my entrepreneurship. I dropped out of school when I was 13. And at that time, I thought, you know, I could just make an impact and start bringing dollars in for myself personally and, and for the family. And and that was in the form of uh, construction work. So worked a lot with my hands uh, doing carpentry and, uh, and asphalt and concrete and, and a lot of manual labor. At the same time, I would say I fell prey to the fast food movement. I, I wasn't educated about health and eating too much McDonald's and other fast food and, and found myself significantly overweight, so obese, even at 300 pounds. And then when I was 18 years old, I had the, you know, aha moment of uh, realizing I, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired and I wanted to do something about it and, uh, and sort of changing my lifestyle, which led me into, uh, into the natural products industry in the, in the space.
1: So you said you were overweight. Uh, I think you mentioned three hundred pounds, right? That's uh, yeah. that's that's overweight. What was that like being heavy as a kid? And after you lost the weight, did you still see yourself as that heavy kid?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I would say it, it added to be. It was one of the reasons I dropped out of school when I was uh, when I was younger because I, I, you know, I, I hit three hundred pounds at eighteen, but even when I was thirteen, I was a. Pretty chubby kid and uh, going into what would have been high school for me which was a big social a club or social time uh, just you know it was another thing to be bullied on I, I was also a smart kid so maybe I got bullied on kind of being uh, overweight and, and and maybe a little nerdy and so you know after I lost the weight it, it had a, a huge change in my in my life and really how the world saw me but you know some of the same thoughts you know that hey 25 years later I still have some of the same thoughts depending on the day uh, you know, I don't see myself as 300 pounds, but I see myself as not the athletic me that I know and I operate in most of the time, you know, and whether that's the day, the moment, uh, or there's a certain triggers to that. I've done a lot of personal work to keep myself out of that space.
1: It's really interesting because when we look in the mirror, no matter how others see us and you're in great shape now, we still have that voice inside that doubts what others see in us, Right.
0: Yeah, you know, I think it's the imposter syndrome nowadays where, you know, and I've shared some of this openly of like, I don't always feel like a, you know, in great shape. I don't always feel like a great entrepreneur. I don't always feel like a great mentor. Sometimes I feel like I'm an imposter in that situation when I, but I know deep down that I am uh, and just have to fight through that. And again, that's through, you know, done, done a decent amount of uh, personal, uh, you know, emotional therapy and other therapies that, uh, that keep me out of that. Kind of repetitive mindset of, of of being an imposter.
1: We'll delve a little bit into that. So, did you have any particular dreams when you were a kid?
0: You mean like dr- like dreams of what I wanted to be when I grew what up? What You wanted or? to
1: do yeah. yeah. Any anything specific?
0: Yeah. I think I've, I've, I I say I'm a born entrepreneur. You know, I became more of a made CEO growing a big business. But I always I just wanted to make money. I wanted to be successful when I was young, and I, and I was not in that situation. So you know, I had a paper route when I was like seven, eight years old to help my brother with his first, and then and then I. I took over and had my own route when I was like 10, 11. And so, you know, which nowadays you, it is, you know, di- living in a different time, but, uh, I wanted to create success. Um, I didn't have a really clear vision of, of what success looked like. I don't even think I had a clear vision of how successful it had to be. Cause I, I did think that I want to be like a millionaire and, and, uh, and realized when, you know, when our business made a million dollars that that wasn't, you know, that's not, uh, uh, that's not everything. Uh, not only is not everything, it's not, it's not a lot nowadays uh, uh, in, in, in comparison, but I just wanted to be successful when I was young because I was coming from a place of, uh, of more, you know, surviving and, uh, and and having a challenged time when I grew up.
1: It's funny you said that every entrepreneur that I've spoken with over the years that made a million dollars and five million and 10 million and, and above. They always tell me that that dream was to make a million dollars. And when they make that million dollars, they maybe celebrate for a little bit. And then it's like, what's next? So that allure of the money never really comes to fruition when they actually achieve it, which which is really interesting. So let's move on to your entrepreneurial kind of founder story. So how did you discover hemp?
0: well, a couple different ways. Well,
1: I, First hemp,
0: you know, I had a hemp bracelet uh, when I was younger and, and, uh, and I thought hemp was cool. I didn't know a lot about hemp, but I, I just thought it was cool. Um, and then I read uh, during my health journey, I read the book, fats that heal, fats that kill uh, Dr. Udo Erasmus. And, and basically, you know, Udo broke down uh, good fats, bad fats, you know, essential fatty acids, and then, and then praised hemp for being a, a very rich source of essential fats, but not being available in North America, only being available at that time in Europe. Uh, and then the other two co-founders of Manitoba Harvest, I met through you know friends of friends, and they were working to legalize uh, hemp in Canada. Uh, and so that was my aha moment uh, of, you know, I was on this health path and on this health journey, and I thought hemp was cool, more from the kind of fiber and total, you know, what it, what it, what it meant as a plant and, and opportunities. Uh, But then I got really focused on how big this could be um, as an oil seed and and, and a nutritious seed. And then, you know, we we got together and formed uh, formed the business.
1: So did you lose weight? Before finding hemp, or was hemp responsible for helping you lose weight?
0: No, I I lost weight before, but hemp was uh, it was responsible for overall health. I I went on my first part of my weight loss journey was on a no fat diet, which you know in the mid nineteen nineties, no fat was very popular. Doctor Nathan Pritikin and his principles, and so you know I uh, I was eating no fat everything and got myself down to thinking I was doing such a good job because I was working out and losing weight that uh, I cut all the fat out of my diet. I was eating like a couple grams of fat a day. Essential fatty acids weren't uh, as popular as they are now. And I start suffering uh, ill health, you know, where my hair was falling out and my skin was horrible and I didn't have the energy levels, all these things that are essential fatty acid deficiency symptoms. And so when I started to research fat and read Udo's book, then I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm missing something. And I literally went from The no-fat diet to the right-fat diet, and that's really the opportunity that I saw with hemp. And so, you know, hemp—I would say—and not only hemp, but hemp and flaxseed and chia seeds all helped, you know, regain my health after I was so fat-starved for a couple of years. And uh, and then I fell in love with the uh, with the business opportunity, thinking that others were going to also experience. No, it's not no fat; it's the right fat uh, and the essential fatty acid
1: diet. So, what was the uh, impetus for starting? So, you have two co- co-founders. Or you met some a couple of guys that were into uh, to hemp. Why was the? What's the reasoning to, for starting Manitoba Harvest?
0: Yeah, I mean, they they were hemp activists, so they were you know got hemp legal and and uh, were super excited about that. And I fell in love with hemp seed oil. That was our first product, and and uh, just the thought of hemp seed oil first, and then when we created it. I was super in love with it and, and for my own uh, personal diet and it started making me feel better and and my essential fatty acid uh, deficiencies were going away. So I was becoming healthier and stronger and I literally would just, I didn't want to do anything else, but walk around and tell people like, no, you shouldn't be on a no fat diet. You need essential fatty acids, you know? And I felt like I was like helping save, uh, s- save people from, you know, some of the same stresses that I had. And, uh, uh, and that's how, that's how really we got started. You know, one health food store, one farmer growing the hemp seed and, uh, uh, and then just one customer at a time, educating people why they should consider hemp foods.
1: So it became a passion for you. And you actually stated that it takes more than a village to raise an entrepreneur. But were people discouraging you when you started, especially since you uh, dropped out of school? Or were they by your side since they won? No, I mean, most
0: people didn't get it. So they just, you know, they walk by and laugh or, you know, they just, you know, they would, they would call it down even some of my own family, you know, I was thankful that my mom was supportive all the way along. You know, she was nice. supportive for me when I wanted to drop out of school when I was younger, as long as I started working. And then when I told her the concept of the business and, and she was, she was going along with my health journey as well. Uh, she, she was very supportive, but other family members uh, weren't. And, uh, and then they weren't for several years, you know, it took us five years to get to our first million dollars in sales, but many people that were Non-supporters, or even some that were haters, they did that all the way through until the you know at a million dollars ish, people started to oh, maybe this is a real business, you know, and uh, and then and then turned on their support or or at least weren't so aggressive in in being a naysayer.
1: So did they come back later with their uh, hand out after yeah. after after the success when they didn't believe in you in the beginning?
0: Yeah, I don't know so much about handout, but people wanted to be part. Oh yeah, you know.
1: I always believed in you. It's like, I always believed in you.
0: Yeah, some of that stuff happened, you know, and it, it uh, it's it's amazing, but, you know, people maybe don't think about that they're not supportive and then, they, and then they overall try to flip because they then, then it's okay or something, you know. I didn't blame anybody because I knew that hemp was very edgy, you know. When you said hemp, people thought that you were talking about marijuana back in the mid-1990s, late-1990s, like, uh, you know, I was, I say the only thing wrong. Lo- the only thing harder than starting a hemp food company in 1998 was being a long hair guy doing it. And so people <laughs> like to profile me, oh, you're a hippie or you're, you know, I, 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 and, and that just didn't resonate with a lot of people's lifestyle. But, two, you know, two things happened. Not only did the business became successful, but the world caught up, you know, where people like see now that it's a good product, it's a good thing. So I, I don't blame anyone that wasn't supportive. It's just that it's kind of funny how uh, cliche
1: that is. It happens, you know, it happens all, it happens all the time, all those fair weather fans
0: then, you know, that they, they, they're not really supportive, but then when it's obvious that there's a win, then they're like, okay, yeah,
1: you get it all the time. I see it all the time. So what did you do to overcome the mystique of hemp in the early years?
0: education you know straight education like every business and brand needs to do well at marketing and telling their story and what makes them unique we had the extra challenge of explaining like what hemp was and the opportunity that um that it could really provide you know the 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 nutrition the the even a great just a great tasting product people liked hemp seed more than flax seed but it was more educational marketing than it was straight brand marketing in in the in the early days so we we researched and and uh, and found all the the latest information and and then printed materials and brochures around that and held demos and training sessions and just talked to people one on one and and to the great thing that about hemp is hemp had the mystique you know it was people were confused wait is hemp marijuana hemp is a, is is hemp a t shirt or is it really food and so that would. At least draw the certain uh, customer in uh, that would be curious for for more information, and then and then we deliver that information to them and, and and win them over.
1: And you were bootstrap, right? You didn't raise funds initially.
0: Uh, I mean, we didn't have any money. We we put ten thousand dollars in to start the business uh, as the three founders, and then um, you know because we're in manufacturing, we needed capital, and so we did raise some money from friends and family to buy our first oil press and. And, uh, and get started. And then, and, but it was, very, um, it was very lean from a, from a capital standpoint. We raised a million dollars to get to the first 10 million in sales. So it's, it was pretty bootstrapped.
1: Not a bad return. It's not a bad return.
0: Oh, yeah. There's lots of, lots of happy shareholders in the, in the end.
1: <laughs> exactly. So it took you five years to get to one million, right?
0: Yeah. Five years to get to our first million in, in revenue. Yeah.
1: So what were the early years like? Uh, what were the obstacles and challenges other than just education as you got to one million?
0: Trying to figure out how to make a consistent, high-quality product. You know, everything was unknown with hemp. So, you know, we had to teach the first farmer and the first couple farmers how to grow the crop. And then, and then we had to figure out what was the high quality, what, what, what did good look like? And I think that's probably the biggest challenge in not only any new business, but for sure. For us, starting a new industry was what did what did good look like, and then and and then and then how did we consistently deliver on good? Um, and so we learned a lot in those early years about just how to get a hemp seed grown and and off and in the bin and actually ready for uh, food manufacturing. And then as a food manufacturer, how to consistently process the seed to uh, to, to to deliver an end product that uh, the customers wanted to buy. And then we had to establish the brand, you know, and go out there and actually sell it to retailers, which, you know, only a certain amount of retailers were supportive of hemp at that time. So it was it was knocking on a lot of doors, probably, you know, five to 10 times the normal amount of doors to uh, to get
1: distribution. And you were manufacturing yourself or did you go, go co-packing? No,
0: we've always, the company always manufactured itself. Yeah. Uh, nice. We, we used it, you know, right off the bat. We uh, We were tenants in the food development center. So like a government facility that has... Equipment that you can rent and and uh, and rent for the day or rent for the month, and so we bought an oil press, but we could rent their bottling machine and their labeling machine. But yeah, we were always self manufactured from uh, from day one, and and you know that's the uh, one of the, the true strengths of the business is is not only self manufactured, but vertical integration where it has the genetics and works directly with the farmers to produce the uh, the input of the seed.
1: Nice. So you've always you've always had that entrepreneurial bug. But once you're an entrepreneur, you got your co-founders, you're, you know, at a million bucks, you're you're growing. Did you believe in yourself as an entrepreneur back then? And if not, what did it take for you to start loving yourself and finding that confidence to make those critical decisions for success? Yeah.
0: You know, I think I've i believed in myself since I made the major life changes. So my my discipline to lose over hundred pounds and um and, and really become the person that I wanted to to become, um, set the foundation of discipline that as an entrepreneur, I believed in myself, I, and and I'm you know this. There's, some people don't agree or whatever, you know the fake it till you make it. I, I'm a person that I believe in fake it till you make it. Or I used to say when I was young, um, you only had to tell me something like half a time, like half of the information, and then I would be able to get it and then and then be able to go and execute that. So I guess nice. I've learned that I have a a, a pretty strong uh, imagination, a pretty strong vision. I can I can see things in my in, clearly in my mind, and if I I found that if I can see them clearly in my mind. I can make those things happen and and then also lead other people to be able to see that and 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 make it happen. So I had I had the confidence myself but I was you know learning as I was going, you know, building the building the plane as we started to fly, which that 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 was the real challenge, but I was so passionate about it. I didn't want to do anything else than, you know, be healthy and healthier myself and then deliver this healthy product out to the marketplace. It fired me up every day. I was one of the entrepreneurs that had a hard time when when I wasn't working, you know, uh, when it, when it was when it was the weekend and I was working, you know, hundred hour weeks then for sure. But you know, any I always wanted to be working because uh, it was it was really moving the uh, project
1: forward. Not nine to five, five to nine, or ninety five per week. <laughs> That's kind of what it what it takes. is that confidence. It's the grind, and it's the passion. So you you had that. So at what point did you say to yourself, "Holy shit, I got a successful business on my hands"? was it at a million was it at 5 was there something different other than Yeah, I think it's about
0: 10. I think it, it, from a revenue standpoint, you know, when we got to a million dollars, I realized and again, when I was a kid, I thought, you know, a millionaire, right? It's a million dollars, a million dollar business. We got to a million dollars and I realized that a million dollars wasn't the right scale for our company. Some companies a million dollars could be the right scale, but because we were a manufacturer, we needed to own, you know, have a, a properly sized facility. Uh, we need to be a $10 million business. So my realization after five years and getting to a $1 million was we need to be 10 times bigger for this business to be sustainable. It took us another five years to get to $10 million. So 10 years total uh, timeline to get to $10 million in annual revenue. When we hit that $10 million in annual revenue, then I was... Uh, well, one, I was 10 years into being a CEO and being a you know successful entrepreneur uh, with, with one business. Uh, but that was the right scale where I, I then started to think that we really had something and then could see the the 10x opportunity from 10 to, to 100 million, and and that's when we you know raised bigger amount of capital and uh, and really started to heavily grow the uh, grow the business. But you know, 10 years is a long time to not have a not have a huge amount of confidence or or, or not overly think that the business could work. Because I think before we were a 10 million dollar organization, you know, it wasn't the right scale. You had to keep growing to uh, to be uh, sustainable.
1: You mean it took you 10 plus years to become an overnight success?
0: At least I say 20 years, you know, <laughs> at least 20, 20. Before, 20 before we got to, uh, you know, an exit in a liquidity event, which is which is true to success, because at that point we had more and more shareholders and success is realization of benefit for all the stakeholders, all the shareholders, uh, which didn't happen until we um, until we sold the business the first time.
1: As you were growing, did it at any time did it scare you?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't think you could be an entrepreneur and not be in fear. I think if you're if you're not in fear, you're probably not pushing the boundaries. Uh, I'm that. open about it. I mean, I've there's many many nights um, for different reasons, uh, uh, but many nights going to uh, going to sleep uh, literally in tears and crying and not thinking I knew how it was going to work and uh, and I think that's just part of the entrepreneur game. I think that's why community is important in entrepreneurship and doing personal work and therapy and stuff and personal growth because that stuff happens when you're in business. The The, the clear path's not always there. Uh, and that and if the clear path's not there, yeah, that's, that's scary as hell.
1: Was there something specific you were doing to get up the next day after crying in bed and just getting up and, and going at it, or was it just kind of an internal drive?
0: I spent a lot of years, again, personal growth. Like A lot of time that I, I live that, like, get up at 5 a.m. as a CEO and, and be in the gym or be at my trainer at 6 a.m., get a full workout in and then go and, and buy healthy food and all my kind of, uh, you know, things for the day. And then, and then jump into the office for like seven 30 before everyone was there. I, I did that for years and years and years. And so that, that was my personal fire. I, I was looking to constantly better myself. And and so it was, it was an easy reflection to then take that and and, and better the business. Not everyone has that. I'm just, I have that. I can't actually turn that off. Uh, it's just part of me. And, uh, but I never really, felt that in life until I found my why. But part of that transition of health brought that uh, just determination to continuously improve, be better every day. And, uh, and and I can take that still in my personal life, but then it, it impact other businesses with that.
1: Yeah, you're nailing the talking points, your why. I mean, you you need that in order to uh, to continue on. So you speak of teams often. Were you deliberate in building a specific culture at Manitoba or did it just happen organically?
0: Well, I think that my realization was was many years into the business. It was probably when we were a four or five million dollar company and we started to establish a formal mission vision values, get more formalized on our strategic plan and that that I realized that the values that the business had were my personal values. you know that we went for the, to be at the highest quality business would be one example and, and I'm a quality guy. I try to figure out where that comes from. I, I, my family's Italian. Italians like to buy nice stuff or have nice stuff and take care of it for, for, you know, a very long time, like it's brand new, that kind of thing. And so, that was in me and, and uh, but also operating with transparency i'm a very transparent guy in communication and uh, and so the business uh, ad- adopted those core values when we sat down and actually defined our core values was when i said oh those, those are a lot of those are my personal core values and to the point where and we've done some more formal marketing exercises over the years that when people say like if a business was a persona you know that marketing exercise yeah. Many team members said, oh, an Antible Harvest would be Mike, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and so it just it, it, it aligned that way instead of trying to actually write things and uh, come up with things and, and put them on the wall.
1: And the team adapted the, the culture. What was the culture like in general when you when you walked in the door?
0: We made it a little bit more fun over the years because we know that fun is, you know, like you had to define the fun. It's e- easier to be a smaller business and incorporate fun. But as a larger organization, we had you know 200 plus team members. That had to be more incorporated, but yeah, I think the culture and what Mental Harvest stands for and stood for the brand, and really what the value that was created that afforded you know the very large uh, exit was because we built a culture of quality to be now you know uh, and when I left the business you know operating two manufacturing facilities totaling eighty thousand square feet of manufacturing with a couple hundred team members that was certified to the to the highest level of food safety and quality, which is a BRC double uh, A plus. With zero non-performances on the audit, only like at that time, the audit said like 10 facilities in North America uh, had that, that rating and you can't build that without culture. You know, we We're doing the same thing with lean manufacturing and, and identifying all these opportunities in the business and, and how do we make them better for the betterment of every team member that, that was there. And if you hear me talk about teams, you know, I, that was one, one example. I think it was probably we were maybe seven or eight years into the business and, and I was, it was through Whole Foods, you know, that I I realized, oh, well, Whole Foods doesn't talk about employees and, and managers and owners. They, they talk, everyone's on the, everyone's on the team. And so I adopted that. We, we, and I mandated it through our business. There is no more talking about employees. There's everyone's on the team. Everyone's a team member. We changed all of our documentation uh, in every aspect of the business to remove any concept uh, of employee and, I think that that those are the things that really built culture because then I you could uh, you could bring in other kind of team examples to help build that culture and many businesses do it. I, I, I adopted as well using like professional sports teams. You know, professional sports teams. You have everyone that's on the team, but it kind of self governs that you have to you have to up your skills all the time to kind of continue to be on the team. Or if not, other team members are like, hey, John or Susie isn't holding up their their own weight or they're not ready, They're not skating to where the puck is or whatever, and so. Yeah, I always I always liked that. And I think that was a big part of our um, uh, culture building at Mantible Harvests.
1: I love that. What happened to your co-founders?
0: They left the business. Uh, they left it at probably, you know, it was year like nine or uh, year eight and nine. Um, and so right when I think we kind of hit the sustainable scale of the business, it, it, it got a little bit too much uh, for them as entrepreneurs that they, um, you know, a lot of formalities, right, to uh, raise venture capital, have a board of directors have a senior management team that has reporting responsibilities and, and acting like a big business. And, and that just didn't work for, uh, for either one of them. So they, they, uh, they left the organization uh, wow. from a, from a management standpoint. I mean, they're still shareholders uh, through to the, to the time that we sold the business the first time.
1: So you didn't buy them out. They just left saying, Hey, you take control and we'll see if, if anything happens.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, a, a separate, right? Being a shareholder is separate from a management. So they they, they left the management, they, they left their job, uh, but they, they were still, they were still shareholders in the business.
1: Did you guys get along?
0: Yeah, um, not all the time, you know, I'd uh, say I'm more friendly with one of the co-founders than the other, but uh, you know, working together is not easy. No partnership's easy. It's, it's like being married. You, you need to do a lot of work on the relationship and, uh, you know, especially with growth, you know, uh, lots of extensive growth for the business. Like the business had a compounded annual growth rate of like 50% plus. So um, when the business changes that much, you, you have to personally grow and adapt or or, or there's gonna be conflicts.
1: Yeah, and the reason I ask is because, you know, it's culture and and co-founders are such a big deal for entrepreneurs. And I had a show with my co-founder, Chris uh, and Barry, and, and we spoke about that and it's, it's not easy. It, it, it's such a blessing to actually find great co-founders that you get along with. So interesting do you remember though your first bottom as an entrepreneur
0: yeah I mean what jumps out right now there's been there's a lot of them there was a lot of them I mean we we started the business in 1998 and in and, uh, and after a couple of years we thought that we had to go find all the hemp you know the people that were that were interested in hemp and so we we went into the US which as a small business less than a million dollars we didn't really have a, a space to be going from Canada to the US but we did and then you know, we launched in the US on on, uh, September 1st, 2001, right after that September 11th happened. And and our our investment was all along the East Coast. And we had, you know, we paid, it was probably about $400,000 in total costs that we, that, you know, to get distribution in UNFI and all this, all this stuff that just came to a screeching halt first by September 11th, but then you know, three weeks after that, October 9th, 2001, the DEA declared a war on hemp foods and said hemp was illegal, couldn't sell it, which was not true. Um, but it was just such confusion. The uh, propaganda was, was, uh, w- was so confusing that all the retailers, you know, just sort of ca- it, it canceled, uh, for the most part that launch. And that, and that was a, that was the first kind of big, uh, rock bottom moment. And, uh, it was hard to see that much amount of money wasted. And then I thought, you know, it was going to, impact the uh the survival of the business but uh you know trenched down and, and just went to work in a different way
1: did you ever want to give up at that time and if you did why didn't you there's lots of times that uh, that uh, that you know
0: would have said like okay enough's enough and and uh, and really you know especially in the early years you know not getting paid first and all these things happen you're like well we can go do something else but it was the, uh, it was the testimonials from people that really, two things. One, I was like, well, where, where am I personally going to get my hemp foods from? Because hemp foods are, are, as soon as we started the business and I tell people now, like I openly, I eat five pounds of hemp hearts a month and I have for 23 years and, and now I'm not in the, I'm not involved in the business. So I don't get paid to say that, but it's just a big part of my lifestyle. It was back then. And so one thing was like, where are we going to get the hemp foods from? Because we were doing it better than anybody else. And then, and then testimonials from people uh, just on that, that, that eating hemp oil or hemp hearts or shelled hemp seeds were, were changing their life, you know, making their arthritis symptoms less and better for their skin and their energy. And, and we got these phone calls and testimonials over and over. And so the, the, the gaps that I had of wasn't sure if I could take any more pain or, or, or do it. It was that, that was the, uh, the feeling, the good feelings that kept me uh, super motivated to just double down and, and, uh, and keep going.
1: I don't know about five pounds a month, but I've been, you know, a Manitoba Harvest customer for probably, man, at least five years, maybe more. And so it's it's an incredible product. So you grew the company from a startup founder, and then later, there's got to be a time where you shift from a founder mentality to a CEO mentality, usually around 1 million to 5 million that happens. In your case, I've been wanting to ask you this for so long. What's the difference between a founder and a CEO?
0: Well, i say that, well, the difference between an entrepreneur and a CEO, you know, you could say founder too, but I mean, and I say I'm a born entrepreneur, uh, but I'm a made CEO. I'm a born entrepreneur because I can make something out of nothing. Uh, and I can make money, whether it's like realizing, Hey, there's some rocks on the ground over there that I could package up and sell to somebody. And, and, and that's kind of like pure entrepreneurship, create something out of nothing, a product or a service, and then market it. A CEO, and, and you're right, it's a, it's a certain size company. It usually uh, comes into line with having shareholders other than your yourself as well. And other governance, like a board of directors uh, intensifies that the chief executive officer, you know, has a formal uh, job description and duties that you could that you can go out there and, and because of that title, compare with other with other businesses. And, and you're going to expect the person in that role to be able to have competency doing all the tasks on that CEO list. I think that's I think that's the big difference, you know or an entrepreneur you can say I'm an entrepreneur and sell swimming pools or you know uh, catch butterflies or whatever the service or product is but no one's going to no one's going to have an expectation of that they do start to have an expectation when you say you're a chief executive officer uh, and especially when you start to put that to a certain size business you know a CEO of a 100 million dollar company there is a lot of expectation of how that person's going to conduct themselves and uh, and and the competence that they're going to have in the different roles uh, but governance and uh, and reporting and responsibility to shareholders is, is a big one
1: and a lot of times founders or entrepreneurs don't have the skill sets and don't want to do it. They just want to be the visionary. They want to be able to go in and do the fun part you know, of, of growing a business. But then once you get to those uh, levels, so what skill sets do you think you needed to adapt at each stage? Let's say one to five, five to 10, 10 to 100, because usually there's very distinct skill sets that apply the, at these stages.
0: Yeah, well, I said I'm a you know I'm a CEO of all trades. My mom uh, was an accountant, so finance and numbers is very easy for me. It has been through throughout my life, and uh, and I'm operationally I I understand how things work from from a vision of like and so I I had that back of the house kind of uh, finance and ops and. uh, I was more of an introvert when I was younger. And after I lost the weight, I I, I wanted to become more of an, an extrovert. And so getting out there and, and selling and marketing is probably the area that I grew more into. And, uh, and then as the brand got bigger, like $5 million plus, I started to get fascinated with consumer marketing and all the aspects from product development to pricing to, uh, consumer, um, education and, uh, campaigns and PR and all those different aspects of it. But, uh, you know, all of them have to grow for me. The way that I work, uh, I had to grow all aspects of that at the same time. My finance, ops, sales and marketing. Some entrepreneurs don't. They have like a inside person and outside person you see in a lot of businesses where one of the founders will do just sales and marketing. One does ops and finance. But I, I kind of wanted to know all the different aspects of the business and and literally walk a mile in all of our team members shoes uh, for whatever we were asking of them. And that, and that kept me up to speed with how much I had to grow.
1: That's awesome. Just like that. I love that that answer. So at one point, your skills kind of run out, and you you decide to take in uh, an outside CEO. Is that, did that happen with Manitoba?
0: It did after we sold the business the first time. So when we sold, we sold the majority of the business in in 2015, uh, and then turned around and and uh, and bought uh, my my friend's hemp food company and and merged the two companies together. And then the business was there, you know, went up to like close to 100 million dollars. And uh, part me being like, hey, I'm not sure that I'm a I'm a good CEO at 100 million dollars uh, because it is a uh, you know um it's 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 not entrepreneurial or or it's less entrepreneurial at that at that point for sure. And the uh, and our majority shareholders expected uh, something uh, different, and so you know it it, just, it made natural sense for me to take a, a, only my board role as a director in the company and be more strategic, but uh, but hire a CEO.
1: So you sold once, you stayed on the board, and then you sold again to the same company or to another company?
0: To another company. Yeah, the first time was a financial uh, private equity company, so financial sponsor, and then the second time was. Uh, to a strategic, to Tilray, which is now uh, Tilray Afri, the largest uh, cannabis company in the world.
1: And then you fully exited the second time, right? Correct, yeah. In
0: 2019.
1: 2019. So Elon Musk says that when you lose a business, it's almost as if you lose a child. Uh, when you sold the business the second time and you left, did you experience grief and loss?
0: For sure, Yeah. I talk a lot about it and I 'll talk more about it because entrepreneurs don't realize that I had the triple whammy we um, we sold the business. my ex and I decided after fourteen years it was time to uh, separate uh, wow. and my mom, my mom died unexpectedly mm-hmm. uh, all within five weeks of each other and so it was a triple grieving experience I, I didn't have my relationship I didn't have my mom I didn't have a place to go that was my baby at that time twenty twenty one twenty two year old business and so uh, yeah, it was, it was an intense six months of grieving, you know, I feel like I, now that I'm two years past that, you know, it, it can look and say it was, you know, it was a very dark, probably the darkest time in my, in my life, just because, uh, the whole world turned upside down, you know, it was a big transition, uh, point. Some aside from the, the power of three that unfortunately I got, even entrepreneurs that sell their business that the next day they're not welcome in the company anymore. I've seen a tremendous amount of friends go through similar grieving and, and just, you yeah, know, because the business is them. They birthed the business and it's part of who they are and their existence out to the world. And so they have to reframe themselves. Thankfully for me, you know, the sale process for Mental Harvest, the first sale process was, you know, training wheels for that. I was still involved in the business so that, the, and it was multiple years. So there's like four years involved from the time we decided to first sell the business, the first time to the the second sale, so um, it, the business wasn't my only thing. I was already starting to be involved in other um, other companies, and all my personality wasn't just into the Harvest.
1: What did you do to combat this six month of uh, grieving? By the way, I'm sorry about your mom.
0: Oh yeah, no, my mom was. Uh, I worked with my mom for seven years. She was in finance, our, our number two in finance. So she worked right through to close the uh, transaction and the sale of the company, and then retired the uh, next day. And then three weeks later, uh, uh, passed on. So yeah, I. Um, what did I do, I was basically a monk, I think, you know, I stayed home and uh, was was intense grieving for for weeks and then started to uh, um, see a therapist as a grief counselor. Specifically, I've, I've seen a therapist for a long time before that. So I know the, the personal work to do and, you know, just went back to finding my enjoyment in the uh, in the day and uh, and working on my health, my physical health. But, you know, putting more focus to my uh, mental and emotional and spiritual health as well.
1: You know, when you were 20, you learned about the power of goal settings and you wrote down the following eight goals. And I love this. Create a good workout plan, pay off debt, put a hundred dollars into into a savings account, buy a new wardrobe, be able to jog 20 minutes, eat only raw foods, put up posters and pictures, decorate the apartment and buy plants and plant books. So you say that these eight goals changed your life and set you on a path of continuous growth. Tell us more about your mindset back then and why you feel those goals changed your life. Yeah,
0: again, I've just, I've been a, uh, since I I had, the lifestyle changes and the weight loss changes have always been a continuous improvement uh I, I was I never wanted to go back I always wanted to go forward so I always I, since that time you know since I was 18 19 20 identified what's going to make the better me you know and then I and I kind of reframe that into my best day ever and uh, and if, if I can continuously improve my best day ever what are the next steps of that look like you know a lot of it for me is you know I'm a natural health enthusiast so I feel very comfortable in nature uh, I'm a big believer in and natural and organic foods and and uh, and that part of healthy lifestyle and so a lot of my personal growth focus would be impacting my environment my space uh, impacting my own personal health and then you know in the later years now has been more on you know, emotional healing and uh, mental health, and meditation and and spirituality, but just continued. I, I still do the same thing twenty five years later. Here,
1: you still write your eight goals. <laughs> I, I, I write it future. a little
0: different. I I, I write nowadays my uh, my professional goals, my personal goals, and my family goals. And there's probably like four or five under each bucket. But something that is you know uh, easy to to look at on the regular basis, and I'll, I'll I'll do it for every year. And it's just kind of intention spots. I can tell you, and some of them are you know personal goal that i want to play 50 rounds of golf this year and uh, because i've been taking golf more seriously and i have the time and i and i really it really helps me stay in a flow state I'm studying and practicing and going and playing and so i would be one example of a personal goal that you know another one is i've been i i've been getting a medical a full medical health assessment each year for the last 5 years and i always want to improve on my metabolic health. So uh, I I do all these things to improve on the last year's results. More muscle, less fat, uh, better blood work and all that kind of stuff. But that's how I keep myself stimulated and to to continuously improve.
1: I, I love the growth mindset. And I think Alex Bayer would take you up in that golf challenge at any time. I think he invited you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he's yeah,
0: runs with him. He just, he just caught the golf fever. I've been, uh, I've been in the, uh, I've been. It's been twenty twenty years for me, but uh, just you know, more and more time and and uh, and being able to practice more and more. But I do, uh, I do like that. For yeah, I've been keeping me in the flow state.
1: Nice. You know, I just had Sean Wells in the show, and he said the following quote: "I had a massive epiphany that I am free to do whatever I want to do. That feeling was like, whoa! I've spent my whole life grinding and sacrificing and going as fast as I can." as heads down as I can, so that I could get somewhere as quickly as possible, so that I can be as happy as soon as possible, instead of realizing that I can change my path on any given day and chase what lights me up that day and be happy that day. And who cares if it's a curved path? It's my path. and the more curves in it, the more unique I am. end quote. You said that you were guilty of not celebrating your successes. Were you that guy grinding and sacrificing which you said I think you were? And going as fast as you can to get to a goal as soon as possible, and then did you burn out because of it
0: yeah well, I mean continuous improvement uh, you know I, I just set more and more aggressive uh, goals for myself I did get to a place where after years of you know getting up at five am and going to the gym all the things I kind of mentioned on the CEO's day and stretching that it, I did get to a kind of burnout space with it going against some of the things that I already learned in my health like i I had a reset of my health when I was twenty and I lost the hundred pounds I had a reset again at, at forty when I thought I was convincing myself oh I can only I could go with four or five hours a night's sleep and that's before I measured my sleep and had a good understanding of sleep as one example you know or I could be traveling and get off my diet a little bit and so that did happen I think it's real and and uh, and, and many entrepreneurs should be really conscious of that because it's a it's a slippery slope that you, you tell yourself that you think you can handle it but then you know as, as the body ages or you get more stress uh, you can have an event uh, which is uh, you know more of a light uh, a, a light switch gets flicked and uh you know, and and so uh, now, and I, but I do wonder that you know now I'm in uh, I'm in the spot of uh, of just being very comfortable with the day. You know, what called the best day ever. Putting my exercise in for the day, spending the time that I like to spend on on uh, eating healthy and preparing healthy food, and spending t- loving time with my friends and family, and still getting a bunch of work done. You know, I, I still you know, but I just I think I'm a lot more efficient in my work when I'm in a flow state for the full time that I'm working, uh, and so I can work. You know. 4 or 5 or 6 hours in the day but accomplish I think pretty close to what I would do when when I was you know trying to grind out 8 or 10 hours uh, aside from you know at least the strategic and 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 kind of governance kind of work maybe not the actually pulling levers and you know doing stints of putting on uh, labels on on bottles in the factory or something you can't you kind know, of obviously do
1: I love that well you're just focusing on fulfillment and that's and that's really important so as often happens with massive success and scale you know one's role as a CEO or actually you know, you're not you're no longer the CEO, but you, you left the company it is all about acquisition, investments and mentoring. Right. Can you tell us a bit about how the last several years have been and look like and the new challenges and adventures involved with the brands that you're invested in? Because you got some really awesome brands. I'm actually interviewing Jake from Midday Squares um, in the next week or so. So that's one of your brands that you invested in. Tell us a little bit about that journey.
0: I've always uh, I've always given back. I've uh, I've been in business for 25 years now, and and um, you know I've done 25 years of nonprofit board work. Uh, some of those years, two or three nonprofit boards at the same time. So uh, I've always felt good personally when I gave back, and uh, and then I think I've probably that's been a certain part of my life that I, I was always looking forward to having more time to put into it. Uh, One of the benefits of kind of retiring from the business was I I can totally control my time. And so now the majority of my time is actually giving back in one way or another to entrepreneurs in the natural product space. Sometimes it's, it's you know, mentoring and and having one on one conversations. Uh, sometimes that gets a little deeper, and 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 uh, you know, it is investing in the uh, in in the businesses. Sometimes a level deeper than that, and getting investing and actually working with the business, you know, uh, at a strategic level on, on, as a board member, as an advisor. And so, you know, I I don't have a master plan with that. I, I really uh, trust my gut, and uh, and uh, and go to products that I like and I have in my home, and then and then people that I actually like hanging out with, and and want to build something with, and then it, it all kind of evolves from there. Uh, and then on the mentorship side, you know, I've been you know, so many requests from people, and and especially over the last two years with COVID here, and me taking to LinkedIn and social media and a lot of and a lot of connectivity that a lot of people need help, and so tried to uh, frame that in a way that is more mass mentorship, and that's the project with Greg Fleishman and I, Fleischman dot org, you know, a toolbox of tools for uh, for entrepreneurs and trainings for entrepreneurs yep, to that. help help them, uh, and and that's kind of the next level of like. Touching more people, I think there's six thousand entrepreneurs have now accessed uh, the toolbox and the materials and, and some of Greg and I's training, and and uh, and all all that at the end of the day just helps my best day ever. I, I feel great uh, I, I, when you know I was I was reminded the other day that uh, uh, a couple of entrepreneurs that I've been mentoring, it's been ten years now that I've mentored them and their businesses. It was you know a couple hundred thousand dollars when they were just starting out, and now they're like a five going out to ten million dollar business and. That kind of stuff feels good, and I think it's it's part of the legacy—not only my own personal legacy that I, I want I want for my kids and my family to see, but also encourage other people, and and specifically in our industry, that they should incorporate that into their life plan—a major amount of give back—and because it feels so good. And and so if I if I have the legacy of encouraging others in the industry, uh, you know, it, it, it feels so good to even think about that from a visionary standpoint.
1: I can imagine how many entrepreneurs are asking you to mentor them. So, how do you decide who you will agree to spend time with?
0: You know, it's a gut feel. So, you know, it's uh, some people try to approach me like, "Hey, not only mentorship or opportunity uh, with their company, you can make so much money." And I'm like, "Well, that's not driving me." Again,
1: <laughs> <because> <laughs> I don't need your money. <laughs> it's
0: just, yeah, it's just natural. Like I, I, uh, I find products, and, and I'm on. I've, I've been a natural and organic product consumer for for 23, 24 years. So. Products that resonate with me that I think this is a really cool product. I gotta meet the, I gotta meet the entrepreneur, you know, uh, you know, you use that example of, uh, of, of uh, Alex Bear even, you know, I like Shark Tank and Dragon's Den are two of my, I don't watch a lot of TV, but two of my favorite shows because of the entrepreneur aspects of it. And then. Seeing the products on there, and saying, so I'm, I'm going to get in touch with the uh, with the entrepreneur, uh, and then if, if I resonate with those people, I want to spend more time with them. Naturally, talking about how you make business better. You know, how do you get more strategic? And then and then and then I have a, a wealth of kind of knowledge or references or resources that I can share. But it, it's got to come from a product that I believe in, and then people that I want to hang out with.
1: Mike, you're an amazing individual. I told you earlier, you know, we know each other for, for a few years, but I am amazed and inspired by your path, your journey. So I want to close on my interview with the following question. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your success over the years?
0: I think the, the answer is, and I learned this about myself through a, a spiritual workshop that I did uh, probably six or seven years ago. I needed to de- determine my own context. I, I needed to I needed to stop thinking that the world was expecting me in a certain way and give myself full license to be myself. And so I determine the context of, of that I'm in uh, and then show up as me. And that's when things really started to click for me. That everyone was like, "Oh, now we got the best of Mike." Before that, I thought I was giving everyone what they expected of Mike. You know, and that's where it was wrong for me.
1: Authenticity. You became the authentic Mike.
0: Yeah, and some of that's even you know I say I absolutely like I've been a I've been in the hemp space for 23 years or I was in the business right and but I've also was a cannabis consumer a medicinal cannabis consumer for that time I couldn't be open with people fully on that because people had misperceptions and and, and I didn't want it to negatively impact the business so I kept those kind of things to myself that wasn't being my full expression to to the world as Canada legalized uh, cannabis uh, you know first medicinally. Uh, but now, you know, recreationally over the last uh, three years, and I could be open to people saying, I, I, "I cannabis has been a big part of my life. And I think it should be, uh, others should have access to it and see if it, it's a better medicine for them or it's a better recreation for them uh, than alcohol or some other, some other uh, items. But. It uh, maybe part of it has been circumstance. Part of it's been more confidence in myself, more confidence to be me and and put myself out there in the in the world. And so I really enjoy doing that. You know, I do it a lot on on LinkedIn. I use that social platform, which is therapeutic for me. I know it helps other people, but it's really therapy for me to put myself truly out there and uh, and just be me. You know, unapologetically me,
1: unapologetically, Mike. I love that, and that's a perfect perfect ending. So, let the Seven Hatters know where they can reach you, how they can reach you or anything else you want them to know in order to follow you or whatever it is that you have to offer?
0: Yeah. I mean, so LinkedIn, I'm, I'm, at, I'm active on LinkedIn on, on a daily basis. So you can search Mike Fadda on LinkedIn. I also, uh, active on clubhouse, so, you know, I'm a big believer in social audio. And so, you know, if you search Mike Fadda, you can jump into a number of our kind of rooms and conversations and chats there. And then, and then I would check out, uh, org for the free resource tools that, uh, that we're offering to uh, specifically entrepreneurs and, and, uh, Those would be the three ways that I would encourage people to connect with me.
1: Awesome. I've been part of some of those um, clubhouse rooms of yours, and they're amazing, and they're very, very inspirational, and you're helping a lot of uh, entrepreneurs. Mike, it's been such a pleasure having you in the Seven Hats. I love your story, and I know you're going to help so many entrepreneurs just with all of these value bombs that you were dropping and I was just like taking notes, mental notes, like one value bomb after another. And so I appreciate your time and thank you for being under seven hats. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mike. Let's end today with the segment of the show that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. Entrepreneurship is a challenging and treacherous journey. It's filled with roadblocks, detours, and sometimes dead ends. We've all heard the abysmal probability of achieving business success. Approximately 20% of new businesses fail during the first two years of being open, 45% during the first five years, and only 25% of new businesses make it to 15 years or more. Any rational person would wonder why anyone willingly sets out on such a path. But entrepreneurs brave the dangers because they believe that they can change the world. They have a mission, a vision, and a purpose that allows them to get up each morning and face the punches headed their way. So it's safe to say that if you're an entrepreneur, every fiber of your being needs to be passionate and innovative, yes, but also determined, resilient, and consistent. And Mike is that entrepreneur. He realized at a young age that nothing is achieved without hard work. He wasn't having the 9 to 5 grind. He had a mission of helping others achieve greater health with the same product that helped him heal himself, hemp. And every day, a bit more than a day before, he deserves to look in the mirror and say, mission accomplished. I hope you found Mike's journey as inspiring as I have. It is a beacon of hope of what is possible. I want to thank Mike once again for joining us so we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you received from it so we can attract even more high-quality people into our 7 Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selek and I tip my hat to you.